Golf's no different from hockey. Requires talent, self-discipline. Golf requires goofy pants and a fat ass. You should talk to my neighbor, the accountant, probably a great golfer, huge ass. How do you measure yourself with other golfers? By height. It's a very, very special honor. I'm Paula Creamer, and you're listening. Well, we're waiting. Hi, this is Martin Cove, a.k.a. John Kreese from Cobra Kai. And you're listening to Quiet, Please. Let the word go out from here across the land. Let Daddy Noonan uh, approve. Hiya, boys. Nice day for golf, eh? Quiet, please. Oh, you got secrets, eh? Hey, this is Shooter McGavin. You're listening to the... Hey, you guys. Hey, we're trying to have a podcast over here. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Quiet, Please. Another week, another show. And we got an awesome guest this week. I'm the one introducing and outroing the show this week because we are missing three of our compadres bourbon bob is busy andy where was he he's doing the uh the he's family he's working he's doing the yeah. i believe the family golf championships yeah. Yeah. um and then christian is probably working it, it sucks and, when he's, and Christian is drinking bourbon too. I guarantee you that he could be. He could be. Yeah. In fact, at this time of night, seven thirty, I'm sure he's definitely drinking some bourbon, maybe some whiskey, like yeah. our guest enjoys. Um, and our compadre, our leader, um, what's he got going? He's he's running for office, right? So he's, he's running got for a local of... office. Our uh, our venerable host, Alan DePew, is is. Uh... With the golden, the the golden, golden boys, boys. Not with us tonight. <laughs> so we're uh, we're missing those guys, but we're playing as a three ball because we have a very good guest this week. All things putting, um, and more specific, Andy, you'll get into it when we make our introduction here. Uh, why don't Why don't you just go ahead and, and and we'll get the ball rolling? Yeah. So our special guest this week, and we're really thankful to have, is Mark Sweeney. Mark is the founder and inventor of Aimpoint Golf. Um, Mark's taught over 100 tour players. He's had three number one uh, official world golf ranked players, uh, 10 major winners, um, and, a, and a little tidbit of trivia. He's also won an Emmy for technical achievement in 2008, which you'll have to tell us a little bit uh-huh. more about that, Mark. Um, but for our listening audience, Aimpoint is what you see all these tour players doing. Uh, when they're holding up their fingers in front of their face, you'll see them, you know, stepping, uh, straddling the line, trying to feel what's going on the, the ground beneath them uh, with their feet. Uh, if you turn on your TV and you're at all aware of what's going on, you see a lot of players doing that these days. And it's all because of Mark. Um, so, Mark, why don't you, first of all, welcome to the Quiet Please podcast. And uh, let's just open it up. And how did you even begin to develop Aimpoint? And where was the need? And and how was the process of getting to where you're at today? Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. I'm psyched to be here. I could talk forever about green reading. <laughs> I've you know I've been doing this for 20 years. This year, uh, this this July was my 20th anniversary, actually. And uh, I got into it because I was a bad putter and I couldn't make anything outside five feet to save my life and nobody could help me. You know, I, I went to pros and they're like, oh, just putt a lot and you'll get better if you putt a lot. And I was like, yeah, it's, it's not working. Um, and there was just no answer. There was no good answer to how much does a 10 foot putt break? Like nobody could tell me the answer. And in my brain, I was thinking that's 
That is not a difficult question. This doesn't, I, I don't understand why there's not an answer out there with all the technology that's involved with golf, with full swing and radars and all that. Why can nobody tell me how much, but, but, uh, 10 foot butt breaks. So I got into it just kind of as a hobby and, um, just dived in and started uh, writing some software. I had a background in software development. So I wrote some software and was just screwing around and testing it. And it worked way better than I thought it should work. You know, I thought it would work like, okay, but not great because, you know, everybody in, in the industry at the time, and we're talking about 2003, we're saying it's impossible to predict break. And there's too many um, factors that you can't control like wind and spike marks and divots and blah, blah, blah. And so it's just don't even try and the first time I tested, I was like, this actually works pretty darn well. Um, and so I got encouraged to just kind of keep doing that and refining it down to uh, eventually ended up on TV. And, 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 you know, when you're on TV and you're doing live lines and you have to be accurate within an inch or two on any putt, any golf green, any course in the world, any player, any green speed, any wind speed, um, and you and you can produce that, you realize it's much more predictable than people think. Uh, and that was kind of the, the the start of it. And then it just turned into a long journey of how do you simplify it down to where everyday golfers can use it. So so your point about TV, I think it's interesting for our listeners to know that when you see those lines being drawn on, on the screen as to what the putt's going to do, that's from you, right? Yeah, I was the first one to have it out there. I have a patent on it still, and I think half those people are violating my patent, believe it or not. <laughs> but I was the first one to do it. We uh, we first aired in 2005 with CBS, and then eventually we had a Golf Channel contract for um, six years, and we were on it. I was on until 2012, um, but basically got six solid years of doing this. You know, 20 tournaments a year, and I did thousands and thousands and thousands of live putts. Um, and even after doing that and seeing how accurate it was, it still was three or four years before people stopped knocking it, yeah. you know, even on TV, they're like, Oh, it's impossible. Yeah. It's like, no, it works really well. Surprisingly, you know, before we jump into how the parameters and how everything works for the putter, um, you do some work consulting with, with golf courses and, and designers. Is that correct? And you have a relationship uh, yes. with Augusta. Yes. Uh, yeah, they were actually my first customer ever for Aimpoint. They were the first paycheck I ever got, I believe it was Augusta National. Nice. Um, yeah, because I actually saved it because it was like 50 bucks <laughs> or something. But, <laughs> but I saved it and it was um, they were they're very, very advanced for golf course management. Uh, they, they, they're way, way, way ahead of the game as far as just understanding how the greens behave, how to set up their course, where to put pins. Um, and so they hired me to basically simulate where they could put pins and where they couldn't put pins, given their green speed and wind and whatnot. Uh, and if you notice, they are one tournament that you will never see a bad pin on. You'll never see runaway yep. pins uh, on a course that's faster than everywhere else and pretty severe slopes. It's always fair. And, and one reason is because we've gone in for, I think I 15 years now I've worked with them. Um, they understand very clearly what the physics are, where you can put a pin given green speeds. That's awesome. So, so that that just brings up a, a whole different question on Augusta, right? You know, there's there's a pretty standard Sunday pins for Augusta. You know, you look back and you watch some of the the tournaments in the past, and there'll be some pins that were in different spots. But generally speaking, you know, from year to year, they seem to be in a, in a similar spot. Are they in the exact same spot, or are they in the same area, or what's what's your take on that? Uh, generally the same area. 
um, not always the exact same spot, but pretty close, you know, and, and the cool thing, the amazing thing about Augusta greens is they can, depending on wh where they put the pins, they can make the score from anything from 10 under par to 10 over par, you know, yeah. so they can yep. really manage scoring based on pin positions. Um, and they'll, they'll adjust sometimes based on weather conditions and things like that. But, but, you know, every, every green has got easier pins, medium pins and really hard pins. And so it's really a function of how hard do they want to press? How do they want to mix it up during the day? You know, you're not going to give everybody all hard pins on one day or all easy pins. Um, and because the greens are severe, there's only certain pinnable areas. You know, when you get severe greens, you can't put a pin anywhere you want. You right. know, you've got pinnable areas and non-pinnable areas and you're, you get what you get with that. So, you know, all those greens have four five, six pinnable areas. And that's where you get, that's where you get your pins. Oh, we've seen that on TikTok and some other things, some viral pin placements in high yeah. school and college tournaments that make you go, come on guys. Well, yeah. the, 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 the physics is really easy. Never put a pin over 3% slope and you're always safe and you get, and, but it's not a rule. It's a guideline. So you can technically put a pin anywhere you want and you'll get golf courses that stick it in the five or 6% slope. And it's completely unplayable. We saw it during uh, one of the women's golf, uh, one of the NCAA things last in the spring, mm -hmm. right? Yep. Just horrific pins, but it's so easy to get right. I don't know why anybody ever gets it wrong, frankly. Yeah. There was one, there was one that I did a TikTok on that yep. got ridiculous <laughs> numbers of, of replies and comments and stuff. It was the Minnesota high school girls. Uh, I remember that. And they, they had, like you said, Mark, they had a pin that was untenable, you know? I mean, there, there were putts that were running up to the hole, stopping, turning around and going 50 feet down the slope. Oh you my know? God. I just, I don't understand in this day and age why every pin setter in the world doesn't know what the rules are for setting a pin. Right. It's it's not that hard, you know? <laughs> And stop trying to be the show. You're not the show. You're you're not so, the show, and it's just unfair. Yeah. Now you're just being unfair to everybody out there, and you're destroying the field, basically. Exactly. So let's let's dive into um, the, how this all works. And I know you've got originally how you came up with it, and you had some diagrams that you used, and it was real in depth. And then you came up with a a shorter version that you were made more applicable for 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 kids and for layman golfers um so what why don't you just tell us you know the whole evolution and how how the process works yeah well the, the current express read is probably the fourth evolution of aimpoint so the first the first evolution was what we call um break lines which is really cool but really really technical like it could take you six months to even figure them out um but when you when the, when i show them to you you'd be like that is the coolest thing i've ever seen but it's like phd green reading so <laughs> aimpoint started you know, as a computer program of 100,000 lines of code. Then it went to break lines, which was very, very technical. Then it went to the aim chart, which was technical, but less technical than break lines. It was, you know, you figure out your angle and your distance of the slope, and it tells you the break in, it'll say 17 inches of break. Um, very accurate, but still a technical read, still took time to learn how to do it well. Um, and then eventually, you know, a lot of, a lot of people did that, but not a lot of people stuck with it. So McCarron did it from day one. He loved it. Some other players did and loved it. But we had a lot of people try it but not stick with the process because it was a – it'd take you three to six months to get really effortless at it. And a lot of yeah. tour players not giving anything three to six months um, on the green at least. So uh, 
it kind of run its course and I had to, and I knew that I had to come up with something simpler, but I could not for the life of me figure out what, how you could reduce green reading down to fewer variables. Um, and then, you know, as they say, necessity is a mother of invention. I had to go teach a group of seven and eight year olds and the old read requi required you to understand angles. So what's a 30 degree angle or a 90 degree angle. And he goes, these kids haven't had angles in school. You cannot teach the aim chart. Think of something else. And I was teaching in like two hours. He's like, think of something else. I'm like, oh my God, I don't, I have no idea what to do. So we go out there and long story short, we put, we used our thumb and, and we had the kids just feel the high side of the putt and hold their thumb on the high side of the hole. Cause all I was doing was saying aim above the hole, right? Cause what do kids do? They aim straight and it breaks, they aim straight and it breaks, they aim straight and yeah. eventually it goes in. So it just got them aiming above the hole. And the crazy thing is it worked really well because your thumb is about a one and a half percent slope most of your putts are, are one or two. So it was getting them really, really close, but it wasn't nearly enough on big slopes. So we were like, okay, maybe two thumbs. Well, it still wasn't enough. And then we realized if you hold up one finger for every percent of side tilt, it actually worked shockingly well. Hmm. And it took me a while to figure out why. Now I understand why it works, but at the time it was just like, I, I don't get this. It makes no sense. Um, even even this week, somebody asked, a uh, tour player asked a guy who was an aim point coach said, it just doesn't make sense. Why do the why does one finger match one percent? And he he goes, well, I couldn't answer the question. Well, I can answer the question now. But at the time, it was just an accidental discovery where you're like, it keeps working. I don't know why it's working, but it just keeps working, you know. And then and then the real breakthrough was, you know, I introduced it to my group of instructors as a kids read, and they're like, yeah, you're whatever, dude. Like you're you're nuts. And then I showed it to some mini tour players who had done the old aim point and they all to a man go, I love this. I like it better than the old one. I'm going to keep doing this. And I remember just going, but, but wait a second, this is like a kid's read. It's technically less accurate, but when you watched them use it, they were more relaxed and they made more putts. Mm. So their make percentage went up with a read that was technically less accurate. And I was just, my head was just swimming at that point, you know, but then, then Brian Gay used it. In uh, January of 2014, shot the course record at Kapalua, not even doing it right, shot the course record. And that to me was the, the moment where I went, this is the way we're going. I just, end of story. I don't understand it yet. I don't understand how to adjust for green speed and grain and all that, but this is this is absolutely the direction we're going. You know, it's, it's funny. I, uh, I've just always, I grew up in the Northeast and so did Brendan. Um, and some of the places that, <laughs> I grew up playing at really, really slopey greens, right? So, so you learn, learn how to play to fall lines and, you know, a lot of putts are going up the hill only just to turn around and start trickling back down toward the hole. Just a lot of really interesting imaginative ways of looking at reading greens. Um, but I always laugh at, you know, you, you get out there with somebody and they're looking at a 30 foot putt and they're, they're saying it's like a half a cup from 30 yep. feet or, or whatever. It's like, wait a minute. <laughs> you can't no. discern the difference between two inches from 30 feet. I mean, and, and the other thing that I think is really funny is, and I, I'm interested in your perspective on this. How many people like grossly under read? Well, 99%. Whether it's verbally... Whether they do it in, in practice, you know, actually 
hitting the putt, that's a different story. But when they start verbally talking about how much a putt reads, yeah, it's it's got to be like it, it's it's even at the tour level, right? Even yeah. on PJ Tour, you know, I taught a guy years ago. I taught a guy, and we were talking about you know inches. How many inches out would you aim this putt? And he's like, I don't use inches. I use balls. I'm like, yeah, but this putt breaks four and a half feet. Like, yeah. How, what do you mean you, you yeah. like that? It works maybe inside <laughs> six feet, seven feet. And then it, right. then you, that is done. And he literally was like, no, I just always talk about balls. And, and then I showed him the real break. And he's like, he couldn't even process it. So a lot of them, you know, they'll tell you it breaks a cup and a half when it really breaks three feet, but then they shove it or they pull it or they, they add break to it. Cause obviously they're good players. So they're making putts, but you know, my, the, the thing I always got back from tour players when I started showing express was they all to a person said, that's too much break. That's not right. It's too much break. And they hit it and it would go in. They'd be like, all right, do another one, <laughs> you know, because it, it, the actual break doesn't match most people's eye of what the actual break is. Yeah. And certainly verbally people have no idea how far off they are when they're verbally saying how much a putt breaks. Yeah, no idea. And that was one of the downfalls with the chart because the chart would say aim 22 inches right. And where's 22 inches? You know, yeah. go, go out to 20 feet and tell me where 22 inches is. It was really hard to nail down. Exactly. Right. And so that's where the, that's where the express was so good because we're not dealing with numbers. We're saying aim there on the edge of your finger find a spot that's your aim i don't care how many inches it is but that's your spot and so it was a much more natural visual read much more athletic read yeah and 22 inches from 20 feet is not a whole lot of break no 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 it's not yeah so what is okay i'm trying to conceptualize this and I've, i've been teaching golf for a long time is it the most important things to this process is once you have a good idea of how the putt's going to fall one way or the other. Is it, is it your start line? Is it the, is it the apex of the break? What, what, what are some of the key points of this for, for the layman golfer? Well, for layman. So, so very simply, and you know, I've asked this question to lots of very high level golfers and almost nobody answers it correct. And the answer is what information do you need to read a putt? Right. What information do you need? You're, you're walking around, you're looking, you're squatting out. Well, what is the information you're collecting? Eventually, somebody will say slope. Yes, slope is correct. They'll say uphill, downhill. Yes, that affects speed. Green speed. Yes, that affects the putt. But the the two primary things that that the thing that causes break is side slope, not any kind of slope. Side tilt. So if the ball is rolling. It's tilted sideways. It turns. Full stop. The, the more side slope, the faster it turns. What most people don't get is how important the length of the putt is. The length of the putt is massively important, right? So. For example, if you have a four-footer that you aim an inch outside the hole and then you go back to five-foot and you aim an inch outside the hole, it literally will not even touch the hole. It will go off over the bottom edge. So Hmm. foot by foot, unless it's really flat, foot by foot, if you don't adjust your break, you're missing one foot to the next. Nobody nobody comprehends how important the length of the putt is. So the nice thing about any point is we don't care how long the putt is because when you hold up your fingers, it creates a launch angle, and the launch angle adjusts automatically for the length. So all you need with any point is the amount of side tilt. And then the fingers do all the work for you. Basically, it says it doesn't matter if you're 18 or 20 or 22 feet. It's going to visually show you the correct start line. So it shows you start where line. to start your ball. Okay. Gotcha. That's interesting. So I, I have I have a Brendan and I were talking earlier. It's like the the philosophical part of this 
is okay once somebody does figure out what the proper you know break is and start line and speed and all that stuff how much of how much of that is is kind of relevant to somebody's ability to putt versus their ability to just hit that line on that speed you know is it is the sorry it's a jumbled question but is it more about the reader or is it more about the execution of what you read Uh, so it depends on your level of golf. So if you if you gave me somebody who's never played golf before, I would probably only work on speed yeah. because their misses from yeah. speed will be way bigger than their read misses. Right. As they get better, um, the read is kind of plug and play. It's not hard at all. But if you have a good read and bad speed, you'll putt well, but you won't putt great. So at some point, as players get better and better, you have to have all three, right? It's not about only speed or only read or only line. It's it's You've got to combine all three together because the 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 margin of error you have on misreading a putt or miss or missing your line is a lot smaller than people think. People say, "Oh, well, I'll pick my speed first and I've got all these different lines I can take." Not really. Go out there, you've got about an inch and a half, 2 inches tops and that is it for your start line. So, the read is plug and play. The ball needs the ball has to break X amount. Now, can you start your ball online? Um, and then ultimately with a really good player, you go back to speed again. So once you get a high level player who read is good, mechanics are good, 80% of your work is on speed work, just dialing in really, really getting that speed range down. So where you're converting at a very high rate, people don't realize how many putts a tour player makes compared to even a college player. Uh, col- tour players make way more putts than, co- than even D one top 50 college players. Like it's not even close. So that only happens if, you're hitting on all cylinders, right? It's yeah, interesting. You said, Sorry, go ahead, Brendan. It's interesting you said that about ability levels, tour players versus top D1 players versus, you know, Joe Average. I, I think most average golfers from a statistical side don't really understand, like, how good these guys are. So if we're no. – I was, I was just looking at PGATour.com and looking at all of the various stats they have for putting, and there's tons of them. What what's things that a fifteen handicapper is it is it three putt avoidance is it number of total putts is it putts per green I mean what what are the things that you should really kind of boil things down to Yeah so so higher handicaps it's about short putts and long putts okay. so it's six feet in and lag putts and 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 short putts play into lag putts right because you know the best in the world um their proximity on a lag putt is about 10% of the length so on a 50 foot putt the best in the world are averaging 5 feet so even if you're a really good lag putter you still have to be good at 3 4 5 6 feet to clean those up um more par saves than birdie putts right for right. for a high handicap i mean high handicaps are making maybe a birdie around maybe so they're they're missing a lot of greens pitching on having to save par inside 10 feet or they hit the green at 30, 35 feet, and they have a long putt that they're really trying to two-putt. So the mid-ranges really don't kick in until you start getting down to kind of mid-70s, where suddenly you've got five or six chances inside 20 feet, and you need to convert a lot of them. So, for example, mm-hmm. on PJ Tour, um, you know, and mid-range is hard because, again, lag putts, you're not making a lot of long putts. Um, so your start line is not critical. You know, inside six, seven feet, your start line can be off and you can still make a lot of putts, but suddenly you get to 10 to 20 feet and you've got, you've got a half a degree of air, maybe allowable on your start line, maybe. 
right? Mm-hmm. And those guys from 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 10 to 20 feet, the best in the world are converting about 30% just on average. Yeah. The winners are converting like 50 to 75% for the whole week. So drop 10 balls in between 10 and 20 feet and the winners are making three out of four, which is mind-blowing if you think about it, how well they that put. Now, nobody does that week in, week out, but the winner does it every week. The winner does it. That is mind-blowing because you, yeah. you look at the stats and the stats run the gamut from the best to the worst. But the performance of some of these guys during those good weeks is just, that's mind-blowing. Yeah, I mean, they're making at least 20 birdies in four days. Yeah. Minimum. They're making five birdies around on 13 greens. So do the math on that. And it's funny because, you know, when you hear, when you hear a player get interviewed, you know, good or bad, when they talk about putting, they always talk about how they had the speed right or wrong. Right. Yeah. That's, that's what they talk about all the time. I really had the speed dialed in today or I was so off on my speed today. And yeah. to me, the, the thing with speed, that's interesting, you know, line is, is somewhat, you know, kind of tangible, right? Like you can, you can teach someone how to aim the putter. You can, you know, teach someone how to make a stroke speed. is just such a, such an enigma, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, and as we've talked to some of our, our guests before, you know, Stephen Yellen, our, our mental coach guy who was on with fluid motion factor, you know, it's about trusting your computer with speed, you know, yeah, knowing that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm assessing the situation, but at the end of the day, it's hard for a coach to tell somebody how to hit a putt with the right speed. No, it, it's speed is the holy grail for me. I mean, like yeah. I said, green reading is easy because it's plug and play. A plus B equals C, done. Yeah. Speed is speed is very personal. The way people think about speed is personal. The way people feel speed or visualize speed is very personal. There's no plug and play. I mean, there's some amount of mechanics that affect it. There's some amount of understand. There's some conceptual things that help speed. But when it comes down to having a 25-foot downhill slider, and a player who can just nuzzle that in, I mean, there, there's some deep-seated athleticism and things going on in their brain that you really don't have access to. As yeah. a coach, you can train and you can work on it, but but there's no one-size-fits-all with speed. That's much more of experimental with how a player reacts, their mental state, how they think about the putt, how they visualize the putt. It can be all over the place. So so I use I use blast the blast sensor with a lot of my students to get that that ratio down that two to one kind of trying to get in that ballpark, regardless of the length of the pot, how much credence do you give to, to something like that? I think, I think it's nice. Like, I think you can't go wrong with a kind of a two to one ish, Um, you know, but Lydia Ko, who's one of the best putters I ever worked with was 3.5 to one. Oh, wow. (laughs) And I'm not, and I'm not changing her to two to one. She did what she did and she did it. Well, guess what? I'm not touching it. Now I wouldn't recommend that as a, standard ratio for people but she did it spectacularly right. well um it, it, it's one of those things that it's, it's fundamentally sound i think mm-hmm. but it's also i don't think a requirement like you would never t- i would never take somebody who had good speed and say well you would be better if you were two or one i don't believe that right but it's a very good fun it's like a fundamentally sound grip fundamentally sound setup well the two to one is fundamentally sound right yeah maybe it can help somebody who's off just all over the place yeah yeah and you get some that are just you know you know there's no way they can control speaks they don't know how to just they just can't move the putter 
you know, they just don't know how to move the putter correctly. So they get fast greens or they have to generate speed and they don't know how to because they don't know how to move the putter. So that that kicks in. But that usually goes away. I mean, by the time somebody's a good college golfer, not as a rule, but they generally move the putter relatively well. You know, they're not doing anything crazy. Well, I will not going to say none of them do, but generally <laughs> they're pretty fundamentally sound. And so you put them on a Sam putt lab and their numbers all look pretty good, but they're converting at 15% rather than 30%. They're making half the birdies they should. I think I think the stats say even a, even a scratch golfer makes half the putts, the birdie putts that a tour player does. Oh, you get wow. 10 feet, 15 feet, 20 feet, they're literally converting at half the rate of a tour player. So it's there's a big Such gap a between wow. college golf and tour golf, a big gap. And and if people aren't ready for it, they go out on tour and get their ass kicked. Yeah. Because they're like, I just can't generate enough birdies. I just can't. You know, it's, it's funny. Like a few weeks back, I was watching, I don't know, maybe it was one of the the playoff events or something. They were talking about Jordan and and uh they had said that Jordan had made one putt over 10 feet in the entire tournament. I'm like, he chips in once around, right? Like, right. Like, like he holds out from off the green. Like, I would love to know what his <laughs> percentage is. Right, but, right. But the thought that he would only make one putt over ten feet, like, and it was maybe in the third round of the tournament that they they had kind of thrown that stat up. That was the whole tournament. That blows. Was it the whole tournament? I don't know. I don't know. No, he's asking you. Uh, oh, I think it, I think it, I remember. Oh, it was for the whole tournament yeah, up yeah. to whatever wow. round it was. But it wow. but it just blows my mind that that there's that much variability, right? And and there's so many guys too out there and girls. Um we'll talk about Lexi Thompson on the 18th team for me, but um that that have yip issues, you know? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I had a 15-year-old with the yips once, and I told her mother, I said, whatever she has done putting to this moment, don't ever do it again. Yeah. I go, if you're yipping at 15, you and, yeah. and she was a very quick motion. She was like, and she was jabby, which in my opinion leads to can lead to yips. But I'm like, if you're yipping at 15, we got major problems here. Like major that freaked me problem. out. You know, you mentioned the Sam Putt Lab. I, I took a student last week to PGA Tour Superstore to do a full bag uh, fitting and we were on Sam, you know, to me, it was, it was wild to see that there was a pretty wide variance on, you know, what they suggested for the type of putter. He could, he could be a little, little bit of toe hang, I think up to like 30 and then all the way down to a face balance. And I'm like, wow, there's just such a wide based on his, his stroke. How much, how much do you put to having the right putter in, in your hand for the type of, whether you're a big arcer or more trying to get down the line, uh, how important is that? I think I've seen people putt with every putt great with every kind of putter you could think of, and I think I think um, probably the most one of the most important things is being able to aim it. Can you point the putter where you want, and then yeah. obviously can you control rotation is second, and then maybe loft is third. You know, loft you know loft will change the role, but it's not going to have as big an effect as if you can't control the rotation of your putter. So if you can't, if you can't start, if you can't aim it and return the putter to where it started within one degree, um, then we got a problem. Now is that putter or mechanics? I don't know. You know, yeah, yeah. That's, where, that's where as a coach, you got to go diagnose, well, you're slamming the face shut because you're flipping your hands or right. doing whatever you're doing. And then you try to calm that down. Um, 
and I think weighting is really important. So go back to speed control. If you get, if you give something, like if you give me a putter that feels light, like a, like a, um, uh, you know, with, with weight in the, sh- in the shaft or in the handle, I can't, I couldn't hit a four footer because I like the feeling of weight in the head. Some people, you know, so how you distribute the weight, I think really affects speed with putting. It's funny you said that too, because my students all make fun of me. I have one of the old heavy putters. And I just, yeah. I just love the the balance of everything and the and the heaviness that it has to it. And I I also go super low. I'm I'm six foot, but I go thirty two inches on my on my putter. And th- there's a thousand ways to skin a cat, but yeah. you know what you teach is primary to anybody, any style, if they want to make a putt. Yeah, I mean, so 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 my putting theory is, you know, if you want to be a great putter and not just a streaky putter, you you have to be a good good green reader. If you can't consistently pick the right target, then you'll be streaky at best, right? So you start with good green reading, which just like with a full swing, what's my target? How do I align to it? How do I point my club there? Um, And then it translates into starting the ball in line, speed control, and then mental, you know, but, but you can't like, you know, people, you know, I learned a long time ago, you can teach somebody aim point won't make them a great putter overnight. Right. You know, if somebody's got good fundamentals, yes, they get really good, really fast, but a lot of kids, college kids, okay, now you have the right target. You can't hit your target eight out of 10 times. So now we got to figure out starting your, hitting your line, um, controlling speed and then dealing with stress. You know, what, what do you do under stress? And, and with my competitive players, I always at some point pretty quickly put them in a stressful situation and just see what they do because they might make everything you look at at home and they go to a tournament and they never putt as well. And you don't know why. And then you go watch them in a tournament. And you're like, I don't even know what you're doing out there. You don't even look like that's anybody I've ever worked with. So well, stress gotta, always tra- stress translates down to the hands and putting all the right. Yeah, tra- the hands, rhythm, acceleration yep. rates. Yep. I mean, process everything, mental focus. I mean, everything gets wacky when you put them under stress. And and I've got some drills that I could put in that I made several people cry. Honest to God, I made a couple <laughs> people cry from these drills. But that's the whole point. I was like, it's hard to create stress on the practice putting green, right? But I need to see how you behave when you get frustrated or angry or whatever, or tired fatigues. Another big one. What do you do when you're tired? You've been out there five hours. How do you, how do you react to that? Well, that's hard to simulate as a putting coach. Um, mm-hmm. So there's ways to do that. And some people handle it great. And some people you're like, well, okay, now I see the problem. <laughs> <laughs> you abandoned your whole process. The minute you got pissed off. <laughs> so, so I'm, I'm going to uh, venture down my, road of cynicism only because that's who i am right <laughs> so i apologize in advance i didn't peg you as a cynist cynic. so one of the things i've always kind of thought about with aimpoint is as you're making a read um you know let's say you have a 25 footer um it's very rare that you have the same slope for the entire Never. Yeah. Yeah. So how is it that, that you account for that? And what do you do to make sure that, that you're getting the best possible chance to get the right read, knowing that that's an issue? Right. So that's always an issue at four feet. You rarely get the same slope. And, and so a lot, uh, a mistake people make about aim point back from the chart days is there was an assumption that you had the same slope and we all know you don't have the same slope putting, even at three and four feet. So the way the physics works, so we basically say, what, what is, what's the math tell you? And now let's create a process that addresses that. 
So what the math says is the biggest slope in the middle third of the putt dictates the break. So if it's steep early, you have to pick that up. If it's steep late, you have to pick that up. But never in the first third of the putt and pretty much almost never in the last third of the putt. So the aim point process, you see them stopping two times, right? They'll stop early in the putt. They'll stop later in the putt. They're trying to find the biggest number. And from a mathematical point of view, if it's steeper early, the ball is going fast, but it's diving early. And once it, if it's low early, you're done, right? There's no recovering that. If it's steep later in the putt, the ball is going slower, but it has less distance to go. And mathematically, mm -hmm. it's a wash. Okay. Right? So, you're, you, so you have to get the biggest number. If you don't get the biggest number, they all miss low. So that's why you're always seeing players get two numbers on long putts. They'll get three numbers because they're trying not to miss the biggest slope in that section. And for whatever reason, that's mathematically that it works every time. Okay. So explain to me this as, as I learned growing up playing this game, especially on slopey greens, you know, the faster the ball's moving, the less that gravity and slope are affecting it. Right. Uh, gravity affects it the same, but it's just getting there quicker. So the time shortens up, but yes. So it seems, it seems to me, and this is kind of how I've approached it over the years is once the ball really starts to get, get slow down and trickle is when it seems to break the most. Is that not necessarily true? Uh, it's interesting. You told me this, you asked this because I had this whole discussion and demonstration yesterday with a bunch of coaches. So if you look at it, as a function of the last one foot versus the first one foot, yes, the back last one foot breaks more than the first one foot. Yep. If you look at it as a function of time, first one second versus the last one second, it's yeah. the same. Yeah, that it makes the same. sense. Yep. Okay. So the other thing, realize if you're focusing on the end of the putt, how the ball gets to the hole for the last, let's say, three feet is all set up in the middle section of the putt. Right. So, so by the time you're, th you're three feet from the hole, the, the putt's over. Yeah. I mean, how much can a three footer break uh, on a steep slope? A three footer would break three, four inches outside the cup on a big slope. That's kind of the maximum break you're going to get in any three feet of a, of a reasonable putt. So now if you're aiming two and a half feet out, but you're only getting three inches in the last three feet, well, where's all the rest of that coming from <laughs> well yeah. before that. Right. So, so what you're saying is, is correct. But from a math point of view, the putt's over by then. Visually, yes, it looks like that. But gravity is a function of time. Gravity gravity affects the ball equally throughout the whole putt. So the first second, the second, 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 the third second, they're all pretty much breaking the same. And, and there's ways you can prove this. There's ways you can do demonstrations where if you take a ball and roll it down two sticks, just roll it down a hill, down two alignment sticks, and putt another ball out away from it at 90 degrees, they both go down the slope at the exact same rate. Hmm. They they track each other perfectly. So one's going forward, one's not, but they literally go down the slope at the exact same rate and they stop at the same time in the same place. So it's like, it's like a satellite. They're going 30,000 miles an hour, but they're falling at the speed of gravity, even though they're going 30,000 miles an hour. So, yeah, the so the interesting part of that then is that the first part of the putt, let's say it travels 10 feet in the first second or or whatever the number is right yeah and the last the last part of the putt may travel like 12 inches yeah. in, in the last second so that's where the time ends up equaling everything out yeah they're basically but but visually you're looking at distance 
This yeah. three feet broke more than this three feet. Well, yeah, but that three feet took seven times longer than this. Exactly. exactly. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so it appears that way, but I can tell you from doing this for 20 years, if you focus on the end of a putt, you will misread a lot of putts. A lot, a lot, a lot of putts you're going to misread. You're just not going to know where to aim. You're not going to know what the right aim is from 15 feet back, 20 feet back, whatever. That's an awesome tidbit. Yeah, really cool. So, Mark, we're going to transition. We're we're good on segues, but with only two of us uh, running running the show today, we we're not as good as some of our compadres. Andy <laughs> ha, Andy always has to have his live update, and there was some major developments in the world of live. Uh, Andy, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, it's mostly live got affected by the ruling of the official World Golf Ranking Board. Um, they came out and declared that that the live events would not receive you know OWGR points um and we've all seen on social media the uh the reactions both on this side and that side about um what this ruling is and i think people tend to to take sides and get emotional about the situation well uh, those guys made their decision and you know screw them and you know, the PGA just wants to, you know, make things, you know, difficult for live players, whatever. I think to me, the most important thing here is that the official world golf rankings had their standards long before live was even a thing. And as live, you know, kind of came onto the scene, it became an emotional situation. People were emotionally invested in it and, tended to have their opinions on these things based on on which side of the fence they were on. And and to me, it, it just seems pretty objective and clear that if you, if you take live out of the equation and you just say that somebody somewhere uh, across the globe had just a little, you know, tournament series that they set up that was a small group of guys, 54 holes, you know, all the things that we know about live you know, take away Dustin Johnson and Bryson and Patrick Reed and all those guys from the equation. Would would anyone be arguing that they should get official world golf ranking points? Mm -mm. I don't think so. No. I don't think so. So Mark, what's your what's your thoughts on that whole deal? Well, I, I remember when they when they announced this a day or two ago, right? We were talking about it. And um, you know, giving or not giving, there, there's two sides of it. One of it certainly comes across as punishing and um, controlling. It's like taxes, right? You can modify behavior by taxing things, certain things. Okay, well, you want to go play live, fine, your decision, but we don't have to give you world ranking points. The other side is, yes, it makes sense. It's a different format. You know, it's 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 not the same format as kind of your standard golf tournaments, um, but you've got this dilemma where you've got really, really known top 20 players playing in it you know, if they go play scramble, you're going to give them points. No, they're going to play in that. I mean, you could, you know, I mean, you could, a, a really smart system would be able to look at it and, and figure out based on their um, performance, how would they fall into world rankings, whether it's head to head or scoring or whatever it is. Um, so I think it's a kind of a mix of the two, yeah. you know, do I care? And no, I don't, I don't care. I, I honestly don't care at all. It's their ranking system. They can do whatever they want with it but it certainly encourages them to play more non-live events or if you want to play live fine, but you're going to get excluded from anything that's based on world rankings. 
Um, there, I think there's certainly an element of that, but I don't think that's necessarily the only reason they're doing it. And I have yeah, two yeah. thoughts on this, Andy. The, the first ahead, is um, one of the one of the interviews I've got coming out later like next week was with Gary Player. So there's some good in, good insight from yeah. him. Um, and he he was he was very right down the middle and how was surprising for me. Um, but you know, you look at Brooks and what he did this year. He still managed to make the Ryder Cup team. He you know he played well in the majors. So there was still kind of a a route for these guys to go um, when they're playing at that upper echelon like he's been. But I think my second point is it's going to be all a mute point anyways because. Yeah. You know, however, this develops next year or the, the next season. I mean, it you know all these guys will be playing together again, anyways. I think. Yeah, it all goes away probably in a year when they merge. I mean, I'm surprised they're making a big deal out of it now. Maybe because they're thinking, well, it's only one year. Who cares? You know why? Why? Why rewrite all yeah. the math if it's just one year? They'll they'll live. Yeah, and, and no ultimately, <laughs> ultimately, I've I've said this before, and. I may be wrong, but I may be right going forward. I just think that that live will exist in the team format going forward only. I just think that that they'll have a limited number of events. They're going to try to build up the equity and the value in the teams, um, which is really their business model from the start. And the the ability for players to go ahead and get those world ranking points in other places on their respective tours, I think will come back. Yep. to them and this issue goes away yeah well you know people do what they're incentive to do if they have an incentive to go find world ranking points they're going to find them yep. yeah exactly. one way or another they're going to find them yeah it's just it's just tough that that the the head-to-head is kind of you know push golfers into a certain corner when really what they wanted was they wanted to go get paid and they wanted to still be able to participate on their respective tours and yeah well i understand that that why the pga tour and the dp world tour didn't want that to be you know kind of the way it all worked out you know <laughs> i i certainly understand both sides of the equation yeah yep. i see both sides i mean i'm not i'm not against competition and i'm not you know if somebody wants to make a tour go make a tour yep. you know if you want to get into the ethics of it that's a whole nother discussion but i mean you know, part of it, part of me says, well, you know, the tour has had a monopoly for so long, you know, tough shit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. wake up. It's going to make you better. And I can tell you from experience, you know, I get, I, you know, I, I'm in a fairly um, competitor free zone with Aimpoint, but every once in a while somebody pops up and it really kicks me into second gear, you know, yep. overdrive about trying to make my product better for sure. Yep. So Andy, you think it's time? Put Mark in the hot seat. Oh man! For the quiet (laughs) back nine hot seat. (laughs) So just uh, simple questions here. Uh, It's kind of like a rapid fire thing. Just whatever, whatever pops into your mind. That's that's scary. (laughs) They're all they're all basic. My mind is a dark place. (laughs) (laughs) They're non-threatening. So, Um, all right. First one's pretty easy. The tenth hole. What is your lowest eighteen hole score? Oh, geez, probably, I think, uh, 76. Okay, hole number 11. What are the three favorite courses you've played? Um, I love uh, Augusta. I love Valley Bunyan. Uh, I love a good good links course like that. And what would three be? Probably, probably Pebble Beach. Awesome. 
awesome list. There's very few people we ask that question to that have had the opportunity to play Augusta. Exactly. Those are all Augusta. the next questions. Augusta <laughs> I usually love falls Augusta. Into, to hole number 12 here, which is what three courses have you not played that you'd love to play? Oh, God. So, everything else. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the problem is I go to all these golf courses, these amazing golf courses week in and week out, and I never hit a shot. Right. Like, right. I just never get I, I want to play um, Old Head. Old Head's high up there. I like yep. to play some of these Irish courses. Um, old head, I think, because I love a beautiful course like that. You know, I'd, I'd love to play there. I'd love to, uh, I don't even, I, 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 I've been to, you know, I went to tour events for six, seven, eight years, went to 20 a year for eight years and never had a single shot at any of them. <laughs> so I think number one on my list right now is old head. Cause I've been trying to do that for like seven years. It's just hard to get to. All right. You got to come up with two more. Oh, I got to come up with two more. I would like to play. Um, that's where. What else would I like to play? I'd like to play um, Bandon. Never been out to Bandon. I heard that's really cool. Yep. And I would like to play. I played St Andrews. Um, I'd like to play Shinnecock. Yeah, Shinnecock. I think Shinnecock is like a hundred percent answered on that. On that. Really. Call. Because yeah. most people haven't played it, and it seems like, I mean, it's it's at least been eighty five percent of the people. I'd really interesting. So. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I played Beth Page and I played um, Sabonic, which is practical yeah. store, yeah. and just yeah. it just it just seemed like a cool place. Totally cool. All right, so name the three best golfers of all time in no order. Oh my god. Um. Well, Tiger's got to be on there. I've I've tried to think of ways where you could take Tiger and compare him statistically to Jack and all that and, and adjust for differences, but there's there weren't enough stats back then, really. Not like you have now. Like right. you can't get putting conversion rates for for Jack. Right. You know what I mean? Uh Tiger Jack. Um gotta go back farther for three. I'd probably would we go with I don't know if we'd go with Hogan or um Nelson, one of those two. Cool. That's a nice. It's hard because I've never seen him hit a shot really other than than TV. You know, it's yeah. and when you get the when you get the aesthetics of sitting. I remember the first time I saw Tiger hit a shot. It was Bay Hill. He was hitting a six iron out of the rough, and I was standing right in front of him. And he hit this thing, like and the noise it made and how hard he went after. I was just like, oh my god! Like <laughs> the the noise that the the sounds that come off of you know a golfer who can really make good contact is so different. That's funny. You know that question. Is it could very easily be re reworded as other than Jack and Tiger, who's the best golfer? Of yeah, all. I mean, I don't know how anybody should, should put both of them in there. I just, we've, I mean, we've I remember watching one, one or two people not include both. Well, the the yeah. ladies uh, two week or two weeks yeah. ago, Jan Stevenson and and uh, Jane Blaylock. Jane, Jane, Jane Blaylock. They they had some of the the great female players in there. Yeah. yeah. And one thing that people don't understand about, you know, LPGA and the, and the, the women out there is the first time I ever walked around and hit shots and watched um, uh, LPGA player hit shots was Stacey Lewis. And it was a long time, 12 years ago, whatever. And we were going out and dropping shots in the fairway and she's hitting wedges in and we were talking about where to place her approach shot and things. And she hit everything inside 10 feet, one after another, different hold to hold. And I looked at her caddy. I go, does she always do this? He's like, yeah. And I'm like, why is she not number one in the world? Like, because you can't putt yet. <laughs> and then obviously she went to number one, but that's um, why you're here. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she was, she opened all the floodgates for me on the LPGA for sure, but um, they hit it really well. Yeah. They hit it really a lot better than people think. Accuracy is really good. Yeah. Cool. Um, So what's, what's the best part of your game? Well, putting a hundred percent. I mean, I, I'm not a good ball striker. Okay. Just not, just not putting. I can keep my, you know, hold my ground with pretty much anybody. I think I think I might know the answer to this question. Hole number fifteen. What skill is most important to play good golf? <laughs> uh, depends on your depends on your your level. Yeah. I mean, if you're a high handicap, it's it's probably tee shots, honestly. Because if you've ever watched somebody who's never played golf or a little golf, yeah, they go top it, chunk it, top it, chunk it, top it, chunk it, get on the green, and mostly two putt. Yeah. So high handicaps is not putting. It, it's getting true. the ball in the air and advancing the ball down the fairway, right? Yep. That's true. Okay, hole 16. Who's your favorite golfer of all time, past or present? Favorite of all time? I would have to – I mean, I hate to be this easy, but I think I enjoyed watching Tiger the most in his prime. It was just mind-blowing to watch him. Yeah. I mean, he was winning 50% of all tournaments at one point. Every other tournament he would win. Yeah. And every and everyone he didn't win, he was top five or top ten. And it was just it was just you kind of you knew you were watching something that was you would probably never see again. Yep. That you know, I think I think he was the most I would ever been engaged in watching was when he was in his prime. Okay, hole 17. Quickly describe the best shot you've ever hit, time, place, situation. Best shot I ever hit that I, that I am coming to mind with was a um, three hybrid over the water at what was formerly Osprey Ridge in Orlando, but now oh. it is um, the um, LBV. No, 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 it's the hotel now. It's the um, oh uh, Four Seasons. Osprey. Four Seasons, yes, yeah, so the Four yeah, Seasons, yeah, yeah. and uh, and it was a it was a par five, and I got out there close enough where I could where I could hit it. Um, a hybrid and I just hit it right on the screws and it's about three feet for Eagle. And it was just like, I don't know if I've ever hit a hybrid with that feeling <laughs> ever since then, but it was absolutely nailed on the screws. Like could not have been. And it was just on a string. I love it. And that I was like it. 15 years ago. That was it. <laughs> so the 18th hole, what do you cherish most about the game of golf? What I tell you what I love about golf is it's so multidimensional um you, you you can't beat it first of all you can improve but there are so many aspects of the game that have to be improved it's not it's so multi-dimensional um between all the different skills and all different shots and, and understanding and lies and grasses and reads and and it's just it's it's just so rich in the ability to learn more about it and, and improve your skills that that literally for a lifetime you you never run out of things to be improving in golf it's just like the forever game you know yeah. yep Okay, we have a 19th hole question, the last one. Who, and this is just specifically for you, who's your favorite Aimpoint ambassador that you've dealt with over time that you've, you know, kind of had in your stable and and has been just the best example of, of an Aimpoint ambassador for you? Um, If we go, let's see, if I'd say... My heart is a little bit with Scott McCarron because he was the first PJ Tour player ever taught. We're going back 2005, I think. Um, and he was the first one on tour. He was prior to Stacey Lewis. 
And he learned it and went to top 10 in putting immediately from ranked 180 or so his whole career. Um, but he he gave me the chance when everybody else was saying, this is a bunch of bunk and laughing at me and making fun of me. He was like, no, I'm going to do this. And he had incredible success. And he was always very, very appreciative. And he would go on air and talk about aim point and he'd send people to me. And he was a very appreciative golfer long-term you know what I mean? I mean, I teach a lot, a lot, a lot of players and some are like, cool, right. thanks. See ya. Never, yeah. you know, I got, I learned what I want to learn. You never see him again. You never hear from him again. You never get thank yous. You don't get, you know, I've seen a lot of players win a lot of tournaments and it's very rare that I get a thank you. Like very, very, very rare. And Scott was always really just a stand up dude from day one. That's pretty awesome. Cause I, I've heard the same thing about him from Steven Yellen. Cause he's worked with Steven Yellen. Uh, on his fluid motion factor stuff. So he's, he's clearly a, a solid individual. So, yeah, I, 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 he, anytime he call, I drop everything and go if he wanted. No question. So we're, well, we're walking up the 18th hole. You survived our, the hot seat. <laughs> our final. Yeah. Good, good job. Cause we re Andy reworked some of those questions. So you were the first on this new version of the hot seat. So well done. Ah. Uh, so coming up 18, or this is the time where we do our final thoughts. I think what we'll do is we'll start with Andy, go to Mark, and then and then I'll wrap things up. So, Andy? So my final thought this week is, is uh, I got two quick ones, right? Um, one of the things that's become pretty clear uh, in the fallout since the Ryder Cup, and we, with John Wood last week, had a great show wrapping up the Ryder Cup, but seems like some of the players have come out this week and really been pretty adamant about the fact that it was a mistake to have the players take that much time off uh, before the Ryder mm -hmm. Cup. So I think that's one lingering theme that hopefully, uh, you know, we learn from and doesn't really happen again. That's number one. Number two uh, is Lexi Thompson teeing it up in the men's event in the, uh, I don't understand this for the life of me. And and I was all for Annika doing it. Um at the time had Michelle Wee was fun to watch do it. Um, but Lexi's game has been so bad this year and she's struggled so bad. I don't understand why she would want to expose herself to this sort of uh under the microscope scrutiny. Um, by doing this this week. And I'm kind of afraid for her, you know, as to what the results are going to be because she's had a really hard time playing golf this year. Mark, your final thoughts? Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, trailing on both the things you said, the Ryder Cup, um, my thoughts with that is always, A, they look over too long of a time period to pick their team. And I, from a statistical point of view, what you did a year ago is almost irrelevant. I mean, you, we look at six, three to six month windows and that's it, you know? So I think their window is too long for, if you really want to put together who's firing at all cylinders now, you know, all these things that look over year long points, not necessarily the best way to do it. And then they have so many captain's picks and now you're just introducing politics and things like that, which create controversy. Yeah. I would think you'd have fewer captain's picks rather than, you know, half of them, but, um, but what do I know? Um, <laughs> as far as Lexi goes, I, it'll be very interesting to see because they're in Vegas. The ball's going to fly a lot farther for, her. 
Um, but again, she, she is, you know, if she could putt, she would have been number one in the world year after year after year. Yep. And she that has never down. cracked the code on putting. It's actually, you know, degrade sometimes. I think last year got a little better, but it'll be interesting when you get into a tournament. What most people don't realize statistically about a PJ tour event to, to have any chance to win, you have to be 18 shots below the cut line. So if the cut line's minus two, you got to shoot at least 20 under to have any chance of winning, which comes back to our, you got to make five, six birdies a day minimum, which means you've got to put lights out. Yep. So if she can handle the distance and her greens are up at 12, 13, whatever, it'll be interesting to see what she shoots, not putting. And, and statistically the men putt much better than women for whatever reason they shouldn't, but they do. Um, she's going to a field where the field average of the PJ tour outputs a top 10 LPGA player. Right. So how is that going to translate to score at the end of the day? That that's what I'll be interested to see. In my final thoughts, first and foremost, Mark, thanks so much for coming onto the show. It, it was, it was really cool to, to get some insight on this aim point. I'll be honest with you. is something that I've thought about since I work with a lot of juniors forever. Um, but I've never really dove into it. And Andy and I were both doing research before the show and it, it, it's it's really cool to whatever systems we have in golf. It's it's cool to get somebody to have something in their mind that they can kind of fall back on and, and kind of relax and let things happen. And when it's based in science, like like you put together with this program, it can it can really do big things for for people that have just been struggling with with, with their putting. So thanks for coming on. Thanks for sharing uh, everything about Aimpoint. Um, my final thought is I had an interview that posted on, on Sports Skeeta this week with Annika, and I've known Annika and, uh, and her husband, Mike, for many, many years, and they're just some of the most gracious people that I've ever met. I mean, she does so much for the game uh, with all the various tournaments she does from the collegiate level, the clinics she does for June, uh, young girls. Um, she's got a new tournament with Sayri Pak that she's doing this year. I mean, she she just does phenomenal things for the game of golf. And I just wanted to wish her a belated happy birthday because she had a birthday a couple of days ago. Um, and that was my final thought. Um, folks, thanks for listening to Quiet, Please. Before, before we before we uh, cut out here, um, for our listeners, if they're interested in learning more about Aimpoint. Oh, true. Yes. How, how can how can they engage Mark? Yeah, so the best thing to do is go to the website aimpointgolf.com and find a um, certified instructor. And, you know, one thing that I struggle with is I'd say 80% of the people I see doing Aimpoint, even on TV, are not doing it right, you know? And and so people are doing things that are like, oh, why are they doing that? They shouldn't be standing on the hold. I'm like, I agree. They're not doing it right. And I get a lot of blowback from that. If you don't learn it correctly, you're going to make a lot of mistakes and not understand why. So if you're going to learn it, learn it right. Find, find a certified instructor and learn the proper way to do it. It'll take years off your life just understanding how the ball breaks. So aimpointgolf.com. Yes. Excellent. So thanks so much, Mark. We appreciate it. Everyone have a great week. Enjoy uh, watching golf this weekend. You only have one opportunity to sell your golf property. Shouldn't you partner with an expert that offers you 30-plus years of golf industry experience combined with the reach of a global leader in real estate? Collier's International Golf Brokerage and Advisory Services understands your unique business needs, whether it is brokerage, management, and consulting. 
be reassured that the market leader in the business of golf is providing you the real answers and practical solutions you deserve. Contact Golf Talk Live co-host and Collier's Golf Advisory Services member Alan DePew today at 717-554-8519. That's 717-554-8519.